My friend Stonewall Jackson, who was a general during the Civil War, was a strong Christian. And Stonewall had this reputation, this is going to shock you, for being a Stonewall. Uh, actually, his military reputation was one of very aggressive tactics, if you ever study his life. So it's kind of a misnomer, technically. But the reason why he got the nickname Stonewall was because he was, and multiple eyewitnesses have confirmed this in some of the letters we have from the Civil War, the man was fearless in battle. And he would sit there on his horse as a general, and bullets are whizzing by him, and occasionally nick him, and he, he just didn't move. He was just fine. He was just, he was fearless. And so one day... One of his uh, uh, subordinates summoned the courage to ask him, like, what is the secret? Like, how are you so fearless in battle? And you think about that day and age, going into battle was in many, many ways a guarantee of death. This is what Stonewall said to that captain. He said, Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. I do not concern myself about that, but always to be ready, no matter when it may overtake me. What a great answer. And I know you know that I love that moment in Stonewall's life, and I've used that reference over the years many times. But the fact is, I think we see something here that's really important. We see a connection between sound theology and how we interpret our circumstances. I mean, here this, this captain is looking for help because battle is scary, and the, facing imminent death, right? I mean, the threat of death, it's like, it's really scary. And he sees this, this general sitting on the horse without fear. He's saying, what's, what's the secret there? And Stonewall says, listen, it's not brain surgery. It's, it's my religious beliefs. I believe in a sovereign God who has appointed the time of my death. And I am absolutely safe and bulletproof until that day comes. So I don't worry about what I'm gonna, you know, when I'm going to die, whether it's in bed or in battle. He says, I just worry about living for, for him, being ready for that day. Theology informed his attitude toward his circumstances. Now, we live in a different time. Can I get an amen? There's not a lot of stone walls around. We live in an age where universities have designated safe spaces. It is a different time. And to feel threatened is not fun. And so I think I can understand people that feel threatened, even just by ideas, it can be unsettling. But here's my question. Is retreating to a safe space really the best strategy? Like, is that, is that the way we should be living our lives, where we should be looking for the easiest, most convenient, safe spot, and like, that's where we need to be living? I think that, that sells us woefully short on what God has called us to in living lives of dependence on him. The fact is, when you read in First and Second Samuel, David faced so many threats, different kinds of threats, different phases of his life. He spent a big chunk of his life on the run from his best friend's dad, King Saul, who was trying to kill him. He faced threats from enemies, coalitions. He faced threats, physical threats because of hunger and lack of provisions. He faced political threats, even from his own children later in his life. And in all those moments, what do we find in David? Not a perfect man, but we find one who articulated what it looks like to not retreat from the danger, but to trust the Lord in the midst of it. You see, Stonewall turns out, wasn't the first one to trust the Lord when the bullets were flying. And by God's grace, he won't be the last. 
So as you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Psalm 31, which is a psalm where David talks about trusting the Lord in the midst of danger and being under threat. But as he does so, we're going to see that it's theology that drives our response to our circumstances, and we need to learn something very important about God from this psalm. And as we learn something about God, we'll learn something about ourselves as well. So let's, let's take a look here at verse 1. Again, this is for the choir director, a psalm of David. That's, uh, that's basically basic notation here for the psalms of David. We pick it up in verse 1 at the beginning there. Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness. Verse 1 introduces the main theme of the psalm in which David talks about seeking refuge from God. And here he articulates that as a prayer. Lord, I seek refuge in you. Refuge, safety, protection. Where is the safe space? Well, the safe space, it turns out, is in trusting the Lord. So he says, Lord, I seek you. Let me never be disgraced. Some of your translations might say, let me never be ashamed. Disgraced is maybe a little bit more accurate simply because this concept of shame in verse 1 and throughout the psalm really, really focuses on the public opinion of people who had trusted in the Lord. And David here anticipates the fact that his enemies, his enemies who were tempted and fallen into idolatry, as we'll see later, that those enemies were shaming him for his reliance on the Lord. His faith was a liability in the court of public opinion. Now, we may not have, have had that situation in this country, you know, three decades ago. But the fact is today, if you're someone who says, I believe what the Bible says about God and about people, about the universe, about our situation, increasingly in our culture, it's becoming a liability. You get labeled one of those weirdos. And so here, I think that's a little bit more of the idea of what's being talked about in this shame. But what does he say? He says, let me never be ashamed. Let me never be disgraced. Lord, vindicate me in the court of public opinion. Well, how? Save me by your righteousness. Lord, act in my life so that people can see that trusting in you is the right decision. Lord, vindicate your name by acting in my life. That's the cry of David here. Verse 2, he goes on the same theme. Listen closely to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me. Verse 3, for you are my rock and my fortress. You lead me and guide me for your name's sake. If you pause there, verse 2 and 3, note the language. Be a, uh, well, listen closely to me. Rescue me, right? Be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me. If you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel, we go, we travel where David was on the run from Saul. We see these, these mountain fortresses, these cliffside caves that David took refuge in with his men on the run from Saul. And as we see that, wow, it's, it's impregnable. It's, it's hard to imagine a, an enemy really successfully attacking against that fortress. And those are the terms that David uses to describe God. His rock, his fortress, his mountain fortress, his refuge. He says, you lead me and guide me for your name's sake. Lest we think that David's all about himself here. He says, all of this leadership, all this provision, Lord, it's for your glory, not for mine. And so he's crying out to the Lord in, in worship and in dependence on God in, in the face of his threat. And the threat is there. Watch verse 4. He goes on, you will free me from the net that is secretly set for me, for you are my refuge. This is a faith driven prayer where he says, Lord, there are secretly set nets. There are traps, 
right? There are, there are ambushes waiting for me, and you know about them, and so you will free me from that net. You will guide me through the ambush that I'm facing or that I may face. Indeed, David trusts the Lord with his very life. He says, into your hand I entrust my spirit. In that sense, he's talking about his his physical life. Lord, I've given my life to you. And what has God done? Verse 5, you have redeemed me, Lord, God of truth. You, You can see here in the language in these first five verses that David is articulating absolute dependence on God. He teaches us, I think very clearly in these verses, that trusting God is always the right move. Trusting God is always the right move. It's never a bad idea. And while that might seem a little basic, the fact is, in the midst of battle, when the bullets are flying by you, in the midst of the threat, when an ambush has been set at work, at school, right, wherever you're, you're not expecting this opposition, right, it becomes difficult to trust the Lord. And so here David articulates in this, in this psalm a prayer of dependence and a crying out to the Lord for protection and deliverance. Note the language in this, just the first five verses describing God. I mean, God is described as the rock of refuge, the mountain fortress, the rock, the stronghold. And he's the safety, right? He is the safe space. But then also note the verbs that David uses in crying out to him. Lord, listen, rescue, lead, guide, redeem. If you're going through a difficult time, if you're, if you're under fire uh, in any situation in your life, I think we can learn from this psalm that trusting God is always the right move. And the idea is that the theology that David knew, his, his understanding of God's character caused him to describe God as an impregnable, impregnable mountain fortress, as his safe space, as his protection, his shield, his invincible shield. And David says, Lord, I'm depending on you, so listen, so guide, so redeem, rescue. I wonder if we view God as our protector as much as he actually is our protector. There's a verb used here in verse 5, you have redeemed me, that's used in other places in the scripture to describe the exodus. You remember the exodus when God rescues the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and and he rescues them from that oppression, and he brings them into the promised land? And now that's the short version of a very long story, but what's proven in that story is the fact that God is trustworthy even when you're backed up against a body of water with no military and a huge army bearing down against you. I mean, that's, that's the, the picture that's given here. Lord, just like you rescued with the Exodus, David says, you've rescued my, in my life. You've made provision for me. You've guided me. So trusting God is always the right move. He's proven it. And again, theology informs our response to circumstances. I would encourage you to let the description of God in this psalm, let the description of God in this psalm help you think about God as your safety net, as your security system, as your protector. Trusting God is always the right move. Again, not a shocking big idea. But the question is, why don't we trust him in the heat of battle? Well, I think there are several reasons why. I'm sure there are many more. But just consider a few of these reasons why we might not trust God. We might not trust God because we think we can handle it ourselves. There's a word for that. It's pride. Where we think, nah, I've got this, Lord. And we don't have it. Even in areas of our life where we are gifted and equipped to act and to to seek solutions, 
even in those provisions of gifting or resources to solve a problem, who should ultimately get credit for that? It's not you or me. David's clear here. It's for your name's sake, Lord, that you lead and guide. The credit goes to God Almighty, not to us. We think we can handle it. We can't. And be careful if you think you don't need God's help. Of course, we might not trust God in times of threat because we don't feel like we deserve his help. This is where self-condemnation prevents us from turning to the Lord, where we kind of get a little Eeyore about it. Like, oh, well, I deserve it. You know, after all, I woke up this morning, you know. So it's like, you know, we kind of get that, that self-condemnation where our own failures, and yes, it's half true. We are sinners. We do struggle, but that's not the full story. And what's communicated over and over again is not you deserve God's help. It's you don't deserve it, but he gives it anyway. How great is our God? I mean, David paints this picture. Listen to me, Lord. Redeem me quickly. Act, guide, lead. As he cries out to the Lord to act on his behalf, he's doing so on the presumption, not that he deserves God's help, but that God is inclined to give it. Sometimes we don't trust God because we think we don't deserve it. But if you ever think that, you need to correct yourself that even though you don't deserve it, God is glorified by giving it anyway. We might not trust God because we have been convinced that there's no hope in the situation. There's no way this can turn out better. There's no way that God can rescue. And fair enough, sometimes there's no way that God uh, can give us what we want, meaning that the, the, the outcome that we think would be best may not be an option. But that despair that there's no hope in this situation, it woefully misunderstands God's sovereign care over this universe. And while it may not be the ideal situation from our perspective, this requires faith. Trusting God is always the right move, but trusting God is predicated on his sovereign reign over the universe. And we just have to trust that he knows more than we do. And so that despair, it's, it's basically misinformation. We don't know it all, but we don't have to. Maybe we don't trust God because we fear the consequences. And maybe that's a little bit more directly in line with what David was experiencing here. For trust in the Lord made him look bad to his contemporaries, that he was being mocked for it publicly, as we'll see later. Maybe we fear the consequences. If we insist on only dating Christians and preserving sexual intimacy for marriage, we're going to look like a weirdo in our culture. I'm not sure I'm ready for that heat right now. I don't know if I want to be that kid at school. I don't know if I want to be that person in the workplace. You know, if I don't lie on my taxes, how am I going to pay my bills? When we fear consequences more than we fear the Lord, then we'll stop trusting him and we'll do our own thing. But what we learn from Psalm 31 is that trusting God is always the right move. It doesn't matter if we understand all the ins and outs of how it's going to play out. God doesn't call us to that level of comprehension. He says, trust me right now. And once again, remember who he is. He is the stronghold. He is the rock. He is the invincible fortress. Trusting God is always the right move. But what's always the wrong move is trusting in idols. Watch verse 6 through verse 8. David says there, I hate those who are devoted to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Now, let's unpack that just for a moment before we get the next two verses, okay? That's harsh language there. I hate those who are devoted to worthless idols. But what's happening is David has been, again, we'll see, publicly maligned because of his faith in the Lord. 
And so he's saying, if I have to choose between being known to trust the Lord or fitting in with the crowd, he says, I'm going to say no, I hate or I reject this crowd, and I accept the Lord. And that's exactly the contrast that's expressed in verse 6. Read it again. I hate those who are devoted to worthless idols, but I trust the Lord. I'm not trusting in them. I'm not trusting in their false gods. I'm trusting the Lord. So it's not so much, oh, I personally hate everybody who's not a believer. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, my allegiance is with the Lord, even if it means I'm at odds with the majority or the public view. And again, we'll see that confirmed through the rest of the psalm. I want you to also carefully note in verse 6 the way idols are described. This is a special phrase that's used just a handful of times in the Old Testament, but it's very instructive. I hate those who are devoted to, and your Bible probably says, worthless idols, empty idols, vain idols. Idols that, that represent gods that don't exist and therefore have no value in their worship. So whereas God is a rock, an invincible mountain fortress, these false gods, they are what theologians might term bueno para nada. Good for nothing. Okay, good for nothing. Okay? They're good for nothing. They cannot help you in your time of need. You cry out to them for help. It's a chunk of wood. It's a chunk of stone. It's not real. It cannot rescue you. Contrast that with God. Listen to me, Lord. Redeem, rescue. You are my rock. You are my fortress. Deliver, act, just like you did with the Exodus. Lord, you've been faithful and you've shown yourself to be the Redeemer. So, Lord, rescue. See, the God who is is the rescuer. But these false gods are worth, worthless idols. That's why David says, I trust the Lord, regardless of what the majority opinion is. He goes on, verse 7. I will rejoice, again, as a function of his trust in the Lord, I will rejoice and be glad in your faithful love because you have seen my affliction. You know the troubles of my soul and have not handed me over to the enemy. You have set my feet in a spacious place. There's a little bit of a discussion here. Is David looking back on God's deliverance or is he in the middle of it betting that God's going to deliver? And either way, it's kind of the same point. Either way, he says, my experience of God's character and his faithful love, that term faithful love, in verse 7, that's all about his covenant uh, promises, that God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises, regardless of, of whether or not David had succeeded or failed. God was faithful to fulfill his promises. And so here he says, Lord, I rejoice in that, right? I will rejoice and be glad in your covenant love that you've expressed in, in these actions because you've seen my affliction and, Lord, you've acted. Again, anticipating the salvation. You know the troubles of my soul and you have not handed me over to the enemy. You've set my feet in a spacious place. That's a term that talks about God giving David victory over those who had opposed him and opposed the Lord. The contrast is clear. Trusting God is always the right move, but trusting idols is always the wrong move. And again, it might seem so basic, but the fact is we struggle worshiping false gods every single day. Just because you don't go to the store and buy a, a, a version of Dagon or a version of Baal or a version of, of Mod or an Asherah pole or whatever, these Canaanite gods and goddesses, just because you don't go to the store to buy those doesn't mean you aren't tempted to worship false gods. When we're under threat, we will run to what we think can rescue us. And the fact is, you have to recognize, in contrast to the Lord, who is trustworthy, false gods are truly worthless. 2 Kings 17, the author of 2 Kings is explaining why the northern kingdom of Israel fell 
Okay, this is 8th century BC. Northern Kingdom falls to the Assyrian invaders. And at that moment, okay, the author of 2 Kings says, let me just explain this to you. And in 2 Kings 17, verse 15, he says, basically, the Northern Kingdom worshipped worthless idols. Same phrase. Look of Jeremiah, chapter 16, verse 18. Jeremiah is talking about, again, confronting Israel. Now this time, the southern kingdom, the part that was left over after that, and once again, they've struggled with the same thing the northern kingdom struggled with. They were worshiping, you guessed it, worthless idols. These Canaanite gods and goddesses who couldn't help them. But I wonder if, if we've fallen a little bit too complacent in our, in our lives today because our idols are more acceptable they're not labeled gods quite as such. So we might not worship Dagon or Mod or Yom or whoever else, but we might trust in something else to provide rescue or refuge for us. Money, family, education, career success, peer approval, food, alcohol. These are the things we might run to when we're in trouble and we need help. But let me just tell you, that in every one of those cases and more, there's no way you would say this, money rescued me from this affliction. Or my education solved my problems and fixed the situation. Or ice cream, right? Ministered to my soul and saw me through. Ice cream's a blessing, okay? But don't make it a god. Don't turn it into a statue and bow before it because it, it's empty. It can't do it. It can't provide that level of, of satisfaction and fulfillment. Alcohol, right? Food, pleasure. You know, if I get to this many likes, well, then I'll finally sleep a little better. That's not how it works. The, the peer approval that we find on social media, that is not going to rescue you. And we've got to recognize that good gifts can very quickly turn into false gods. And when we turn them into false gods, they become worthless. They can't provide the help that we need. Of course, here, good theology not only helps us interpret our circumstances, trust in the Lord is always the right move, but good theology protects us against bad theology, against false gods. It exposes idols for what they are, good for nothing. There's also a note of hope here. As David worships in response, he says, you know my troubles. You know, sometimes we have a hard time navigating difficulty just because everybody wants to pretend that we're all doing okay. But what we find in the book of Psalms, which is such a blessing to us, is some honesty. David is not saying everything's fine. Everything's not fine. And he says, Lord, you know my troubles. You are aware of the challenges that I'm facing. I know some of the challenges that are being faced in our church family. I certainly don't know all of them. And the fact is that what you're going through, even though not everybody knows, you need to know that God knows. And trusting God is always the right move. Even if the pain is deep, even if it's a long-standing trial, why? Because God doesn't just know about your troubles. He's the God of covenant faithfulness. He's the God who fulfills his promises. And so there's hope in that, in seeing his character, right, on display as the God who comes through and fulfills his promises. This is never easy, and it's especially not easy when we're outnumbered. And so David actually, in verse 9 and following, he goes into a little rehearsal of the situation. 
He doesn't give specifics, but he talks about at least the circumstances that he was facing because of the threat. So we don't know what kind of threat he's talking about. doesn't really matter. But watch the prayer request here and watch the circumstance that he's in. Again, he cries out to God for help. Verse 9, be gracious to me, Lord, because I am in distress. My eyes are worn out from frustration. My whole being as well. There he's probably talking about his eyes being weary because of all the weeping that he's done. Ever cry so much your eyes hurt? He says, my whole being is tired. Verse 10, indeed, my life is consumed with grief and my years with groaning. Maybe these were multiple trials that added up, right? My strength has failed because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Again, he's talking about the physical effect that the trial has had on, them, had on him over the years. And he just says, I'm tired, Lord. I'm tired and I'm hurting. But it's not just a private struggle. Again, it was also a public struggle. Watch verse 11. I am ridiculed by all my adversaries and even by my neighbors. I am dreaded by my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street run from me. You ever have friends like that? And they see you coming, they run the other direction. I caught a couple saints in the hallway or in the, in the fellowship hall. <laughs> Uh, you know, sitting down, eating, and the table was suspiciously empty of anyone else. And we had a little laugh about, why isn't anybody coming over here? Because when they see us in the streets, they run from us, you know, that kind of thing. David says, That's, that, I'm a pariah. When I'm seen in public, people are, are turning and running from me. I've been labeled. I've been labeled a threat. I've been labeled dangerous. Verse 12, I am forgotten, gone from memory like a dead person, like broken pottery. Like just casually tossed aside. Verse 13, I have heard the gossip of many. Terror is on every side. When they conspired against me, they plotted to take my life. David's like, they're whispering about me. They're, they're moving against me. They've even plotted to take my life. That's the amount of opposition he was taking both publicly and privately. So you can think about the way that that might affect you. And just to put it maybe some color to the situation, possibly, we don't know this for sure, but possibly... David is describing his experience when his own son Absalom turned against him, forced him out of Jerusalem and claimed the throne of Israel before David's death. Where David publicly fled, and in Jerusalem when you flee, there's no private way to flee. It's, it's within visible, uh, within uh, you know, clear sight of the whole city. So he, he goes out uh, across into the Jordan River Valley, and as he did so, he was mocked along the way. This is David. As, as a seasoned adult with adult children, right? But the David who was victorious against Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. The David who led Israel to victorious battle against the Philistines multiple occasions. The David who had seen the solidification of the promised land and really its most glorious time in its history. He'd been the king that facilitated that reign and he was run out of Jerusalem. People sneering at him, laughing at him, spitting at him. Watch verse 14. But I trust in you, Lord. Do you see it? Trusting God is always the right move. The contrast in verse 14, it's the same that we find in verse 6. In fact, it's the same, basically it's the same wording. But I trust in you, Lord. Right? 
Everyone's against me. They're whispering about me. They're conspiring against me. Public opinion has turned on me, but I trust in you, Lord. I say you are my God. I will not worship the false gods, the, 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 the worthless idols. I will not give in to that temptation. Instead, I will worship God alone. Notice the, the expression again of dependence here. Verse 15, the course of my life, the times of my life, the days of my life, right? The course of my life is in your power. Rescue me from the power of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me by your faithful love. You hear the language from number six there in the priestly blessing. Make your face shine on me. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me by your covenant faithfulness. That love, that grace that's expressed in your commitment to keep your promises. Lord, verse 17, do not let me be disgraced when I call on you again publicly. Let the wicked be disgraced. Let them be quiet in Sheol, talking about the abode of the dead. Let lying lips that arrogantly speak against the righteous and proud contempt be silenced. You know, at the end of verse 18 there, David says, okay, let's talk about this. Publicly, I'm persona non grata. I'm the one who's made fun of. I'm the one who's seen to be a problem. But Lord, I'm asking you to vindicate your name and your glory. And those lips that are lying about me, those proud lips that are running down the righteous, those who have trusted in you, let those lips be silent in death. He says, let there be vindication, Lord. Again, this is not a personal vendetta against individuals per se. But it's a broad statement that David says, I'm not going to trust in public opinion. I'm not going to look to these people for my approval. I am going to trust in you, Lord. I'm not going to worship the false gods that they want me to worship. I'm going to trust in you, Lord. Trusting God is always the right move. But it's the best move even when it's not popular. Trusting God is best even when it's not popular. You find it hard to really put into words the heartbreak David must have felt when Absalom ran him out of Jerusalem and when his so-called friends turned on him. Maybe some of you have experienced that. You've experienced hurt from your family. You've experienced friends stabbing you in the back. Someone you thought would be of benefit and help to you in a time of trial ended up being just another enemy. But here's the reality. Trusting God is still best even when it's a minority view. Trusting God is still best even when those we thought would side with us have turned on us. And ultimately, the wicked will be disgraced. I mean, David's confidence in the Lord here looks to the long view. So he says, Lord, take care of business. Get it done. But I'm looking for public vindication here, ultimately. I think in, in verses 9 down to 18, we get a, a roadmap for, again, kind of dealing with the threat that we're facing. I, I give it to you in three steps here. First, David seeks God by honestly expressing his struggle. So if, if you're finding difficulty worshiping in the midst of a hardship that you're facing or you're under threat, seek God by honestly expressing your struggle. Take your struggle to the Lord, right? Deliver that to the Lord. Say, Lord, this is what I'm up against. He knows your troubles, right? But secondly here, David articulates his trust in the Lord, so we could commit to trust the Lord in the midst of the difficulty. Sometimes you just have to say it out loud. Lord, everything's against me here. The finances are against me. The, my health is against me. You know, whatever situation is against me, but I will trust in you. And in that prayer, you're also asking, Lord, help me trust in you. Help me to stay resolved in trusting you. Just a side note here. This is why we need each other. 
because we all face days where we're really struggling under threat and we need help trusting the Lord. We need an encouraging arm around the shoulder. We need someone to come and pray with us. We need that encouraging text message. We need that phone conversation. We need to have that conversation in the hallway at church. We need that encouragement at at care group and a Bible study because we're not meant to do this alone and we can't do it. But after you've expressed honestly your struggle, then there's the commitment. Lord, I'm going to trust you. Help me. And then third, heed the warning to the proud. Here in in verses 9 to 18, especially there at the end, there's that caution against those who just side with the majority and are willing to speak against those who've trusted in Christ. There's a warning here to the proud that those lips will be silenced. And David says, Lord, do it for your glory. Trusting God is best even when it's not popular. And fundamentally, it's an act of worship. Not surprisingly, this psalm was used in worship at the temple. And the end of the psalm, verses 19 to 24, we just have like an explosion of a worship moment where David just praises God. But listen to this language. Watch verse 19. He says, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. I just, you know... Some of you are preppers here. You know, you familiar with the term preppers? Yeah, doomsday, chicken little, sky is falling, right? So you're the ones that drive the prices up at Costco. Thanks a lot for that, right? So there's store, you got storehouses of, you know, water and canned food, you know, ready for the next big disaster or whatever. But here, David uses that storehouse analogy, but he says God is prepping. What is he prepping? Goodness. How great is your goodness, Lord, which you have stored up for those who fear you. If you fear the Lord, if you've trusted in Christ, Psalm 31 says that God has a storehouse and he's got a massive collection of goodness there with your name on it. And so this maybe explains how there's mercies that are new for us every morning. Where it's some angel's job to go to that storehouse and find, okay, where is so-and-so? Okay, yep, here's the goodness for them today. All right, let's deliver that, right? I mean, that's the picture, that even though we're under threat, even though my family could turn on me, even though everything could be going against me, the career could be a disaster, right? Or whatever could be going on physically, all those struggles that we face, the Lord has goodness stored up for you. He goes on, verse 19, in the presence of everyone, again, public vindication, you have acted for those who take refuge in you. I should tell you the rest of that story with David and Absalom. Of course, he gets run out of town, but he does return to Jerusalem. God delivers his throne back to him because God had covenanted with David. He had promised David the throne would be his. And so in that moment when David returns to Jerusalem triumphantly, God's glory is shown. God was faithful to fulfill his promises. And so David, there was public vindication of God's glory and David in in the, the resumption of his reign. So there, yeah, in the presence of everyone, he acted, the Lord acted for those who take refuge in you. Verse 20, you hide them, the believer, you hide them in the protection of your presence. You conceal them in a shelter from human schemes, from quarrelsome tongues. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? You know, you just could see God's protection of you. And that those quarrelsome tongues are not going to have their ultimate effect. He's protecting you from human schemes. Again, David's just worshiping here. Verse 21, worship language. Blessed be Yahweh. Blessed be the Lord. For he has wondrously shown his faithful love to me in a city under siege. God has shown his faithful love to me, David says. So praise him. 
In my alarm, verse 22, I said, I am cut off from your sight. There was fear for a moment. But you heard the sound of my pleading when I cried to you for help, he says. So what? Verse 23, love the Lord. All his faithful ones, all his saints, some translations, love the Lord. The Lord protects the loyal, but fully repays the arrogant. Be strong and let your heart be courageous, all you who put your hope in the Lord. You can feel the worship tone here at the end of the psalm, where David is not just limiting his experience of God's goodness to himself. He says, I want to share a little bit about how God was faithful under the time of threat, because I want you to be encouraged to love the Lord and to worship the Lord. So he says, love the Lord, all his faithful ones. If you have put your faith in the Lord, then love him because of his goodness, as evidence, David says, in my life. And yes, he fully repays the arrogant. Another warning there. Don't be that proud person that doesn't depend on the Lord. Because trusting God is always the right move for everyone. And so he calls us to be strong and courageous and to put our hope in the Lord. Why? Well, because the fact is, when it's not the majority view, it's not easy to trust the Lord. Trusting the Lord is always the right move. And fundamentally, at the end here of Psalm 31, it it resolves in love for the Lord. The calling is clear here. Love the Lord. Worship and love go hand in hand, don't they? If you have worship, valuing someone supremely, but you don't have love, you are subservient to a tyrant. That's just fear. Worship without love is just fear. If you have love without worship, well, you actually have worship of yourself. Because if you're saying, oh, I love God, I love God, but there's no honoring of God as God, there's no consideration that God is worthy to be valued above all else, well, again, you're worshiping someone, it's just not God. You're worshiping self. But here, worship and love, again, go hand in hand. When we think about the character of God, it's not just enough to say, God is my rock, my refuge, Lord, rescue me. But David says, how should we respond to God? Praise him, or praise him and love him. Love him. This is, of course, language of intimacy. I wonder if you would articulate your own relationship with the Lord in those terms. Some of us might quickly say, I fear the Lord. But do you love the Lord? And some of us might quickly say, oh, I love the Lord, but do you fear the Lord? David says, blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his faithful love. Now, this psalm is so positive because David had seen or was sure he was going to see deliverance. I think probably it's more likely it's after the deliverance has happened because he's so specific about it, about God coming through for him and rescuing him. And maybe you've been sitting here this whole time, and we've been riding along, talking about trusting God is always the right move, trusting God, don't trust idols. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all this, oh yeah, it's all going to work out. When it all works out, praise God. It all works out, praise God. Hold on a second, Pastor Ryan. It doesn't always work out. And that's a fact, isn't it? That sometimes we get sick and we don't get better. But sometimes the bill comes and there's no way to pay it. And sometimes the family turns our back and we don't have the triumphant return to Jerusalem. We just get stabbed in the back. And we face the difficult circumstances, these trials. What if God chooses not to protect? What if God, who is a rock and a fortress, what if he chooses not to 
restore in that given situation. But what's articulated in the psalm, even though it's, it's done from the perspective of victory, it's not trusting God only for positive results. It's trusting God in his sovereign care and the exercise of his providence, even when it doesn't go right. I mean, think about that. Everybody's going to trust God when everything's going to work out. You know, we were, we were watching a movie the other night, and Sam, who falls asleep during every movie that we ever watch, um, you know, something was going on, and, and I leaned over, and I said, Sam, don't worry about it. The good guys are going to win, you know? And I, didn't, I hadn't seen the movie, but I just, you know, took a chance, right? Because it was a Marvel movie, so they always win. Duh. I mean, it's not brain surgery. And so then the next morning, we were talking. I said, how did it end up? I said, well, it turns out the good guys won. You know, there's not a lot of threat there. I mean, you know, it's interesting to watch, but it's not like, oh, are they going to make it? Like, no, they made it, right? I mean, that's it. But what about if they don't make it? Does this psalm really warrant trusting God when death is staring us right in the face and it may win? Well, the answer to that question comes in the use of the psalm later in history. Because it wasn't just a psalm that was read and worship at the temple. This was a psalm that was known and loved by many Israelites over the years, including one particular descendant of David. You'll remember in Luke chapter 23 that the son of David, who had been whispered about, who had been yelled at, whose family had told him he was crazy at a given moment, who had been formally brought up on charges that, of course, were false, who had been rejected by his friends and neighbors, his own generation, who had been not only brought up on Trump charges, but had been beaten and tortured and then slowly executed in public sight as a statement to say, this person has lost This person is a failure. Do not follow this person's example. That son of David hung dying on the cross for you and for me. And literally, his last words before he died, what does Jesus say? He quotes from Psalm 31, verse 5. What does he say? He says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I entrust my spirit. Why does Jesus go to this psalm? Because even in his death, Jesus demonstrates to us that trusting God is always the right move. When Jesus quotes Psalm 31 verse 5 on the cross, he is not ignorant of its context. Jesus, as he quotes that in his final word, right? As he makes that statement, all who hear can go to Psalm 31 and be reminded of what this psalm is all about, which is about trusting God no matter what, no matter how great the opposition. It's not trusting God on the pending guarantee of of victory, but it's trusting God because he's God and he's worth it. And yes, sometimes God ordains for us to go through difficult times. Death may not seem like the ideal outcome, but hold on. Because when Jesus articulates that statement of faith from Psalm 31 on the cross, he dies. And that is not the end of the story. 
You see, the fact is, even in death, trusting God is the right move. And while death may seem like a loss to some, even a public death by, you know, instigated by mockers of the Lord, even, even that might seem like a loss to some, but in fact, Jesus' death wasn't a loss, it was a win. And that victory is vindicated by his resurrection. And because of the resurrection of the son of David, we can have confidence in saying, trusting God is always the right move, even if I die. Right? Even if it means I die today, if I die trusting God, it's the right move. It's the right decision. The tomb is empty. And because the tomb is empty, we can see God's faithfulness on display even through the darkest valley there ever was. And so, brothers and sisters, don't misunderstand Psalm 31. This is not a promise that everything is always going to turn out good for you. It's not a promise that everything will always be easy for you. This psalm is meant to encourage us that no matter what we're going through, our God is a rock. He is an invincible fortress. And trusting him is always the right move. You got to be strong. You got to be courageous. Trusting God doesn't happen by accident. I know I've told you about my friend before, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703. His uh, great-grandfather was uh, the first to come from England to the British colonies. And so he, he was third generation, grew up in the colonies. Still a little bit of a wild situation, but nonetheless, he grew up educated. And uh, he was raised in a Christian environment. And he was, uh, he was you know, sent off to what was then the best school for training for life, and particularly pastoral ministry, which at that time was Yale University. So Yale was newer, and it was kind of the, the bastion of orthodox theology for the moment. And so he went to Yale. His senior year at Yale, which his senior year, let's be clear, that was like he was like 16, okay? So man up, young people, whatever. Anyway, uh, he, he, get, he gets to Yale. It's his senior year. He got, he got really sick. He got really sick that year, and he almost died. And that year, the year he almost died, he, he gets better, and he realized that he wasn't ready to die, meaning he hadn't personally trusted in the Lord for forgiveness of his sins. He had raised in a Christian environment and all that, had the best education, but he hadn't trusted the Lord. And so that experience of near death, that really shook him. And so he did. He came to faith. He trusted Christ for the forgiveness of his sins their senior year of college. He stuck around for a couple more years to do a master's degree there at Yale. At this time, he's the ripe old age of 18. And at, at 18 years old, he decides, this is, I'm not going to trust the Lord by accident. Be strong, let your heart be courageous, right? I'm not going to trust the Lord accidentally. So he makes resolutions. And he was, during this year, 1722, he, he, 1722 to 23, he ends up making 70 resolutions, okay? And these are like, he, his commitment was to read them every week, and they were statements of things that he was going to pursue in his life. Because trusting God doesn't happen by accident. I want to read you his first resolution, the preamble and the first one, just because it's an encouragement to you that trusting God not only is it possible, but it is attainable by virtue of resolution, that we can, we can trust the Lord if we will work at it. He says this, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. By the way, how does that fit for Psalm 31, right? Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Number one, resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure 
in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or ever so many myriads of ages hence. Simple. I resolve to do whatever I think will be most to God's glory, no matter what's going on. You know, I think we find in men like Jonathan Edwards a model, not of perfection, no way, not even close, but a model of someone who said, I'm not just going to say trusting God is always the right thing. I'm going to work to trust God every day. And as I do so, I know I'm not earning his love. Rather, I'm living in light of his love. Trusting God is always the right move. The question is, will we trust him? Would you pray with me and we'll ask God to help us? Lord, we thank you on this Sunday where we've celebrated the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the gift of grace. Lord, that we come to you not because we are worthy, but because you have graciously made provision for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Lord, we praise you for that. And we ask for your help. We ask that you would help us to be people who trust you no matter what. Lord, we do face uh, a cultural situation in which increasingly it's making it awkward for us to live as Christians. And so we ask that you would provide for us, that you would go before us. Lord, we pray if it's, if it's your will for your glory that you would vindicate your name in the sight of, of our culture and our community. But Lord, regardless of what people whisper about us, we ask that you would help us to, to trust you. Lord, protect us from idolatry. Help us to see through the lies of the false gods that we may be tempted to trust in. And Lord, we ask that as we trust in you, that you would grow your kingdom, that there would be evidence, clear evidence of your faithfulness in our lives for others to look to. And Lord, we thank you most of all for that provision of Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to live in light of, of his death and resurrection and trusting our spirit to you because you are trustworthy. You are our rock. And Lord, we come to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.